With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Texas Sports Nation podcast. I'm Greg Rogan with the Houston Chronicle. I'm joined today by a very special guest, a personal thrill for me to have this man on. Hockey Hall of Famer, six-time Stanley Cup champion, the only man to captain two different teams to a Stanley Cup. Now he's an ESPN hockey analyst, and he's also the author of the recent memoir, No One Wins Alone. I'd like to welcome Mark Messier to the podcast. Mark, thanks very much for taking time to talk today. Great to be on with you. So I want to start with a question. What do Toe Blake, Gordy Howe, Tony Esposito, Jacques Lemaire, Serge Savard, Guy Lapointe, Mark Howe, and Mark Messier have in common? Uh, we've all done your show. I, I wish that were the case. Unfortunately, that's not. <laughs> but you are all Hockey Hall of Famers who coached or played in Houston at some point. Wow, there you go. Well, if the, if the folks don't know, I did play in Houston five games uh, back when I first turned pro. Yeah, I, that's what I wanted to I wanted to start with that because I don't think a lot of people realize the only minor league games you played in your career were in Houston. And I guess it was an important enough moment in your career to where you mentioned it in your recent book because you called when you were sent down from Edmonton, quote, up until that point, the worst day of my life. So for those who aren't familiar, could you please, um, I guess, revisit the circumstances behind what got you to Houston? And is it something you can laugh about maybe 40 plus years later? <laughs> maybe it took 40 years to be able to laugh, but it certainly wasn't funny at the time. I had, uh, I had uh, you know, made the team out of training camp the first year that Edmonton made the, uh, the NHL um, coming out of the WHA. And uh, Houston was going to be our farm team that year. Uh, I'd made the team. Uh, we're getting ready to go on a road trip. I was living at home. Uh, my mom dropped me off at the airport and realized that she had dropped me off at the wrong airport. Missed my flight uh, to Detroit to go play uh, in the in the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, I phoned the office. No cell phones back then. Phoned the office. They said, don't worry, uh, Mr. Sather has uh, left you a ticket at the uh, Air Canada window. So I was a little bit relieved as I was taking a taxi back to the international airport. Got there, found my ticket, but instead of going to Detroit, I was going to Houston to uh, being sent down to the minors. And in those days, being sent down to the minors was not a fun experience. Uh, it obviously had nothing to do with the city or the town or anything like that. It was, you know, a young guy making the team out of training camp, playing in the, in the NHL. Oftentimes, when players did get sent down to the minors, uh, they never they never did find their way back out of the minors. So, uh, and, it, and it certainly uh, in my family, it, it happened to my brother. And so all those experiences, seeing my brother being sent down and never being able to get back up uh, were uh, were still relevant in my mind anyways. And uh, But I did have a great time in Houston, Ace Bear, the great Ace Bailey, God rest his soul. Um, you know, I lived with him, t- took me under his wing. Uh, we had a great time for the five games I was there. And, uh, and uh, lucky enough, I was able to get back uh, to the NHL and finish my career for the rest of it in Edmonton. I saw an interview with your teammate, your longtime teammate, Kevin Lowe, last year, where he joked that 
Glenn Sather, the Oilers coach and general manager, quote, realized he's having too good of a time down there, so he had to bring him back to Edmonton. <laughs> I'm guessing that wasn't quite the case. <laughs> well, it is it is true. It was my first taste of the minors, and when I my first day there, I was really uh, you know gung ho to show them that uh, I was a good player and ready to go. So I got to the arena really early, had my equipment on, was dressed you know an hour before practice, and. There wasn't too many uh, players around the room, uh, even an hour before practice, where I felt strange. Uh, you know, half hour before practice, still nobody's there. And now I'm thinking, geez, am I at the right rink? Is it, is the practice at the right time? I got all these, you know, a little nervous now after missing the flight. And 10 minutes before the practice started, everybody came flying in the back door with their golf clubs over their shoulders and <laughs> got dressed quickly and got on the ice. So it was a little bit different atmosphere playing in the minors those days. I was going to say that would be a fun time. I think that was Houston during the urban cowboy era. So that would, would have been a different, very different vibe from Edmonton. I actually spoke to the reporter who uh, who was covering the Houston Apollos in, and he remembered you skating on the ice after in Apollo's game, I guess it was before you played your first game and the PR guy was telling him that guy is going to be a superstar. He's not around. He's not going to be around here long. And the reporter asked, well, what's his name? He mispronounced your name. He said, oh, messier. So uh, I guess you did leave an impression about before you played a game with the Apollos. I, I looked up the box scores. It was kind of interesting. You played, you had three assists. You helped the Apollos become the only central league team to beat the U S Olympic team. And that was the U S Olympic team that went on to win the Miracle on Ice in Lake Placid. And one other funny note, um, a guy who ended up being a teammate of yours for five Stanley Cups in Edmonton was on the Apollos, uh, Charlie Huddy. So I thought it, it was an interesting stay for only four games. Yeah, it, uh, it, it was, there was a lot uh, to, to like about my, my stay there. First of all, to, you know, the respect that you have for the players trying to make their way up to this, to the NHL and, and of course, uh, you know, hockey, as we know now, is uh, is big in the South. Uh, you know, I, in the WHA the year before, I played in Birmingham and some some areas there that I typically wouldn't think were hockey hotbeds, but the people loved it. It became very popular. And, and of course, now hockey in the South has become really popular. But uh, yeah, look at, uh, you know, Houston at, at the time for me, um, you know, it, it taught me a good lesson that, uh, you know, time, uh, my time isn't any more important than anybody else's. And if you want to be a professional athlete, uh, you better be on time and uh, you better have the responsibility to uh, make the right decision. So uh, it was an early wake up call for me and one that I ended up being thankful for. And of course, uh, Houston will always be uh, be a part of my uh, of my story now. We'll, we'll claim you as a, a great who came through Houston. So, well, thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> let, let's uh, let's shift to current hockey. Um, Stanley Cup playoffs are generally considered the best in pro sports, but how surprised are you by how competitive this year's postseason has been? You had six game sevens through the first two rounds. Really, an unbelievable game one the other night between Colorado and Edmonton. Colorado won eight to six. It just seems like uh, the playoffs have taken off to another level this year. Actually, the parity in the league has been kind of trending that way for the last uh, number of years. Uh, you know, if you go back all the way back to the to the two thousand uh, work stop, two thousand six work stoppage, uh, in the uh, the equal balance in, in in teams and salary cap and whatnot has really kind of leveled the playing field for for a lot of teams and made a lot of teams very competitive. Uh, you know, this year I think in the East we had. I think almost eight, eight to ten teams over 100 points. All teams, all eight teams for sure in the playoffs over had a had a, over 100 points. And if you think about it, uh, every one of those teams, um, although 
difference in the standings is, was minimal. It was hard to say that there was an upset uh, in the first round, even though it was like the one seed or the eight seed or whatever. So I think it's been really great for the fans. Uh, you know, it's great uh, going, you know, 82 games and we're going down to the last week of the of the schedule to see, you know, who's going to make the playoffs. Uh, I think it creates fan interest. And, of course, the playoffs have not disappointed. Uh, we've seen some incredible hockey going all the way to game sevens, uh, five in the first round. Incredible, actually. And, um, you know, I think the, uh, the talent in the game might be as as strong as, as it's ever been uh, across the board. Uh, you know, every team has superstars. These young players are coming in with incredible skill sets. Conditioning has been unparalleled in the game. Technology, you know, everything that combined to, to make our game as great as it is right now, it's, 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 it's awesome to watch. The conference final series that ESPN is carrying is uh, New York Rangers, your former team, against Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay is attempting a three-peat, which hasn't been done in 40 years since the Islanders won four straight Stanley Cups from 1980 to 83. You played on some great Edmonton teams, and you guys won back-to-back championships twice, but you couldn't three-peat. What makes that so hard to accomplish in in this modern NHL? Well, back then, uh, there wasn't as much movement, but there was still a lot of movement. Uh, You know, the Tampa Bay Lightning, if you look at them from just last year, you know, are missing their entire third line. Uh, Savard, who played, who came from Columbus, was a huge component of their Stanley Cup win last year. So even if it's four or five players, that's twenty five percent at least of the team that's uh, that you have to uh, change going into the next year. Now that doesn't seem like a lot, but you know everything changes, chemistry changes, uh, synergy, you know the dynamics in the dressing room. All that has to be implemented again over the eighty two game schedule to get yourself back to the place that you were the prior year in the Stanley Cup Finals. And it takes time. It takes work. You know, it takes a lot of patience. And, you know, they made some great deals at the deadline to bring in Hagel and a few players that have really been instrumental in this uh, playoff run. So, you know, and then, of course, injuries. Um, injuries, you got to be lucky enough to stay away from injuries when you're playing that much hockey. Um, you know, you're playing a lot of hockey over a short period of time, and it can take its toll on the fatigue factor. Um, but for me, uh, Tampa, you know, got through all that pretty good through the regular season without a lot of really bad injuries. They've don't look fatigued to me. They've got a great rest going into this series. They're still young. Their core is young. Their core is stuck together and they got great leadership when they're in, uh, in Cooper and their coach. So, you know, they're going to be handful for anybody this year. And, uh, but those are the challenges in my, in my mind of a, of a team trying to, uh, trying to three-peat for sure. Even, even going back-to-back is incredible. But uh, it's a three-peat in this day and age is, 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 is really remarkable. You mentioned the roster churn. I noticed in Edmonton when you were there, your general manager and coach, Glenn Sather, he liked to turn over like 10 or 15% of the roster, usually on the lower lines or lower defense pair, kind of bring in some fresh blood, maybe some hungry guys. Um, how much do that help you guys every year? Well, it's it's uh, it's a blessing and a curse and a blessing at the same time. Of you know, you always hate to see players that you've won a Stanley Cup Cup with leave, but you know, it's also an opportunity for the for them to go to another team that wants a Stanley Cup winner to make more money, play a different role, and so you're happy for them. Uh, the new guys that are coming in, you got to welcome them into your culture and and, and you know, insulate them with you know with with the all the assets and all the things that they're going to need to be successful. Um, you know, empower them to be the best they can be. And if you got a good culture, that, that that's what you work towards with new players coming in. And, 
and uh, that we had that in Edmonton. We, you know, we we knew what was expected of each and every player. We knew, you know, how we wanted to play on the ice. We knew how we wanted to act off the ice, and 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 that I think that's a you know something when a new player comes into an environment like that, it's very easy for him to see, you know that kind of those kind of expectations and then grab an oar and start rowing alongside everybody else. And that's what happened at Edmonton. We're able to make some changes to the bottom part of the roster each and every year that to your point brought a lot of enthusiasm and, and a lot of character at times. And, uh, you know, it really kind of invigorated the rest of us to uh, try to win a Stanley cup for them the next year. You retired from hockey in 2004. I, I'd seen you make appearances on NBC broadcasts over the years, but what made you decide to join ESPN when they got the NHL rights back last year? Well, good question. I wasn't really thinking about uh, doing uh, the analyst job uh, when ESPN got the contract again. And um, I got a call uh, from a good friend, John Davidson, um, who had done a lot of desk work with MSG and then went on to be president of uh, St. Louis and in Columbus uh, uh, asked me if I was interested in maybe doing the job and I hadn't thought about it. And I go, well, I'd think about it. Uh, I haven't really thought about it. <laughs> this is the exact words. Uh, so I had some dialogue with him and then he set, got me in touch with his agent, Sandy Montag and uh, had a lot of uh, clients at it, ESPN and kind of told me about the work schedule and what it would entail and the people that you'd be working with and people to be helping you through it started thinking about it and for me I watch hockey every day anyways uh, to, you know I, I'm a one of those guys that sits at home and watch every game watches the west coast games out uh, without doing it as a job so um, it was kind of a, a challenge for me to see if I could go in there and and do it I got a lot of respect for the folks that have done it before me and do it really well and you know articulate the game in a way that fans can appreciate and learn something from so it was kind of a challenge for me. And of course, at the same time, being involved in the game has been fun. Kind of an interesting twist. Um, your good friend and longtime teammate, Wayne Gretzky, he's also a television rookie this year with Turner. Is there a friendly rivalry there? I mean, do you guys trade uh, critiques of like how each other's doing? Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the, I've said from the get-go, you know, um, competition is good for everybody. Um, you know, we're, we certainly watch what TNTs are doing and, and now, and now, since I'm doing the job, I in fact I watch everybody that's doing it in all across all sports. Uh, it's it's a it's harder than it looks. There's a big learning curve. Um, you know, being able to articulate any one point under in a short amount of time is not an easy thing to do. Uh, you know, teaching the game. You know, letting the folks and the viewers understand the nuances of the game. But uh, you know, ESPN, TNT. I just think it's good for the game, right? I mean, it's it's. You know, to have Wayne on TNT and along with their, their their desk crew and us on ESPN, hopefully it's bringing some attention and more viewers and more interested viewers. And we're, you know, giving, giving them an education in, on hockey this time of year because uh, it's, a, it's, it, it's a different game in the playoffs. There's a lot that goes into it in preparation and the mental fatigue, the mental warfare strategy. Uh, but for me, I've always found that part of the game fascinating. From your time as a player, how important is it for the NHL to be on ESPN again? You know, not just from having the games there, but you have the Sports Center coverage right after the game and all the other programming that goes with it and the exposure that comes with it. I think back to your Stanley Cup run, you know, with the Rangers in 94, and it was so accessible because it was on ESPN. You could watch every game. I remember it getting a huge audience. It was like one of the most captivating 
playoff runs ever. And I guess from a selfishly, you could go into a, a sports bar or a hotel room and it, it's easy to find ESPN where in the past it might not have been easy to find some of these cable networks that the NHL had been on. Well, I think you said it, the exposure has been incredible, but even backing up a little bit, uh, when the when ESPN did get the contract and I did come on board and going up to Bristol and, and, and meeting the people, not only in front of the camera, but the production crew and everybody behind the scenes, how much passion they have for the game and how much they've missed it. Um, you know, it, it, it seemed to me that, uh, you know, hockey was in ESPN's DNA and it's showing, I think, in the in the passion that they have for the games and the, and how much pride they take in the productions. But when you talk about exposure, you know, we're getting text messages from people all over the world that are watching the games. Uh, and so I think the reach that ESPN has and and the accessibility to the games is is really important. And I think that's why it's been such a home run for ESPN to be back in the in the fold and. And, uh, you know, to be a part of that uh, is, has been really exciting. Uh, there's a lot of eyes on the games right now because of the great superstars in the game. And, you know, the storylines with Tampa trying to three-peat and the New York Rangers back in it this year. And, of course, McKinnon and Colorado, McDavid, the Oilers. Uh, there's no shortage of uh, compelling storylines to follow right now. When you were playing in the 1994 Stanley Cup Final, there's a famous Sports Illustrated cover that said, why the NHL's hot and the NBA's not. When you think back to that 94 Rangers championship, how much of a missed opportunity was it for the league when the owners locked out the players a few months later and you really couldn't build on the Rangers momentum from that Stanley Cup? Yeah, it was. I think it was disappointing for everybody, for the players, for the league, uh, for the fans. I think it was a time that, you know, the hockey transcended the, the game itself. Um, uh, the the, the you know, the Rangers after 54 years, original six, huge fan base across the country, um, you know, really brought hockey back into the limelight. But in the end, as painful as it was and the missed opportunity, um, I think the balance of uh, players in the league right now is, is is pretty healthy. The league is healthier financially. The, I think the teams are healthier financially. And and I think what we're seeing now is the business is, uh, is, is grown. Um, I think everybody's, you know, it's been a tough couple of years through COVID, obviously. But other than that, I think uh, the the, the league is probably healthier than it's ever been. And it was not easy getting there. There's a lot of give and take on both sides uh, from players and, and, and owners and the league. But uh, I think they've fallen in a good spot right now. And uh, hopefully it'll continue because the game is, seems to be getting better, you know, every year, faster, more talent and uh and for, from a fan perspective, that, that, that's good news. Because the Rockets were playing the Knicks in the NBA Finals at the same time you guys were playing the Canucks in the, in the Stanley Cup Final, one of our reporters covered Game 7 of that 94 Cup Final. He said it was an amazing atmosphere from before the puck dropped right through the end. You've played in a lot of high-stakes hockey games, if it's international hockey, NHL. What do you remember about that game seven and just the pressure of playing in such an intense situation? Well, we came home, for, uh, you know, we lost the first game, uh, won the next three, came home for game five, and it was a very carnival atmosphere, um, you know, party atmosphere, if you will. I mean, everybody was making arrangements, uh, you know, for the for the party after, for the parade. and. <laughs> but things didn't quite work out the way everybody had anticipated and go all the way back to Vancouver and get blown out. Now we come back for game seven, you know, trying to uh, do something that hadn't been done in 54 years. Uh, the anxiety level 
I would say across the, the, the city and everywhere was at an all-time high. Um, the carnival atmosphere was still there, but it was more apprehension than, than festive, uh, which even, you know, added to the, to the atmosphere, you know, going into the game, leading up to the game the night before, um, you know, all the press, the articles uh, in the papers, uh, you know, just added to the, to, to that tension. And uh, then game day, you know, outside, just, uh, you know, again, uh, a carnival atmosphere, but just with more anxiety, not, not so festive until, you know, you know, the, the combustible energy in Madison Square Garden that was just to this day, I'll never forget uh, during the anthem. Um, and then being able to take it uh, all the way and, and win it, uh, you know, to this to this day, I think anybody that was there. In the building, anybody was there following the series, uh, the, from the players to the fans to the coaches to the to the to the media, um, you know, saw something that uh, maybe we'll never see again in our lifetime. That's very true. Um, the NHL has a leadership award named after you. Last night it was handed out to the LA Kings captain Andre Kopitar. You know, yourself, Wayne Gretzky, and Terry Ruskowski are the only players who've captained three different NHL franchises. What is it about the captain's role in hockey that makes it so unique compared to leadership in other sports? Well, I'm not sure if it's different. I mean, you know, if you're, you know, leadership and all across all sports is the same. I, I can't speak to the cultures in different sports because I only really, I mean, I played all sports as a youth, but not to the level where leadership would have been that, you know, relevant to me. But in hockey, you know, nobody can win alone. <laughs> you know, this sounds like funny because the book is named that, but but it's so true. Uh, you need to be able to galvanize a team around each other. You need to find a, a focal point to to galvanize a team. Um, you need to find the inspiration to make everybody better. And uh, in the old days when there was much more intimidation in the game, you had to be able to rely on your teammates to not let anybody get exposed and and uh, get in a bad situation. So there was a lot of trust that goes into playing on a team, a lot of responsibility. You know, you got to be doing the work on and off the ice. You got to prepare yourself and, and you got to know that the guy sitting next to you is, is doing that uh, because without it, you can't win. So there's a lot of components to leadership in, in hockey where our best players uh, in on any given night are playing 25 minutes of the 60. Uh, maybe some defensemen can play a little bit more, maybe 27 minutes, unlike an NBA team or a game where, you know, the best player can be on the ice or on the court for 48 minutes the entire game. So, you know, you're often, uh, and then the fatigue factor where, you know, you need everybody to contribute, no matter how big or small. So all those dynamics, you know, make it very much a team responsibility in order to win. And that's where the leadership, that's where the culture, that's where all the things that we we're talking about that make a team successful become so important. Your book is titled No One Wins Alone. I thought it was a very interesting read about leadership, the influences that you had growing up and in hockey, you know, particularly your dad. And then I think you had a couple of interesting uncles. One of them was a college professor. Another one, I think he worked for Muhammad Ali. So it's kind of a very colorful um, background. But what I want to ask you was years ago, I met one of your former Edmonton teammates, a man named Kevin McClelland. While he was a coach in the minor leagues and you played on an Oilers team that had seven Hall of Famers. But Kevin McClellan is a guy who scored what's considered to be the biggest goal in Oilers history. It was the only goal in game one of the Stanley Cup final against the Islanders when you guys broke through and won the Stanley Cup in 1984. He told me he was lost as a player before he got traded to Edmonton that season. And 
you guys kind of helped helped him find his way. So I want to ask you, what do you and the other team's leaders do to build up a guy like Kevin McClellan to where he becomes an unsung contributor on championship teams and kind of like finds his place as a player? Well, the first thing you do is you, you welcome him in, him into the team. Um, you do everything you can to make him feel comfortable, um, both on the ice, off the ice. I think in a culture, everybody's got a job. In a good culture, anyways, uh, everybody has the expectations that anything other than their best is not good enough. And and I think for Kevin or a player like Kevin there, he, he uh, had a defined role. He knew what his role was on our team. Uh, we knew what we needed him to do. Um, and um, giving him the confidence and playing him in the situations that uh, he felt important. Um, and he took that, uh, he, he took the opportunity and ran with it. He was in, you know, a hard-nosed third-line centerman, which every team needs. He also was was pretty skilled uh, and a lot more skilled than he even gave himself credit for. But through it all, you know, with the confidence to play and the confidence to try things and the confidence and the work ethic to, to work on his game and practice uh, made everybody better. Uh, you know, our practices in Edmonton were really played at a high tempo. The skill level that was required just to practice with the Oilers at that time, you had to pay attention. But what it did is it made everybody better. It gave everybody the confidence to to work on their game and try things that perhaps they might have been a little embarrassed to do anywhere else. But uh, through time and through repetition there, everybody improved. And uh, and so I think to, to answer your question, you know, you know a guy like Ke- Kevin, um, we needed Kevin in order to win. He knew we needed him in order to win. He didn't want to let anybody down uh, because of the responsibility that we gave them. And no matter how big or small the role is, we've heard it all the time, um, you know, without Kevin being his best, without uh, Dave Semenko being his best, without Dave Hunter, the list goes on and on. You know, you know, we don't win five Stanley Cups in, in Edmonton. You know, Wayne doesn't win four Stanley Cups, uh, um, the greatest player ever. And he'll be, Wayne Gretzky would be the first one to tell you that, you know, without those contributions, uh, you know, success doesn't come. Those Oilers teams are, are pretty fascinating when you look back at it. Just the talent, the personalities on the roster. You guys had seven Hall of Famers and a Hall of Fame coach. And with a salary cap, we're likely never going to see a team like that again. At what point did you realize that that was a group that was capable of accomplishing special things? Well, I think everybody recognized uh, you know, what Wayne Gretzky was going to do in his career very early on. He tied for scoring the first year 163 points with Marcel Dion went on the next couple of years and scored 215 points, you know, smashing every record there was. Uh, the determination, uh, the dedication, the focus that he had was, you know, unparalleled. Uh, we recognized right, right away that not only was he going to do special things and wanted to be recognized as one of the greatest players ever, but he was going to win a Stanley Cup at some point. <laughs> so he said, if, we, if we're smart, we're just going to figure out a way to compliment him. And uh and uh, go along for the ride, which is uh, exactly what happened. Now, you know, Wayne would t- be the first to tell you that, you know, who knew that there was going to be seven or eight Hall of Famers playing alongside him at that time because everybody was so raw, um, you know, and nobody was doing the things that he was doing at an early age. But as we got a little more mature and got a little more experience, there, our game started to come together as well. And, of course, uh, backstopped by the great Grant Fever and Andy Moog. So we had great goaltending there. We had great players. We had great character. We had great chemistry. Um, you know, we had everything that it takes to make a, a dynasty and, and, uh, and probably more importantly, we had the commitment to, to see it through and, 
and not under underachieve with the players that we had. So everything turned out good in that regard. I want to ask you about a famous moment from your career. Uh, 1994, you're with the Rangers against the Devils in the Eastern Conference Final. You guys are trailing three games to two at, at the practice before game six. You, guarantee, you guaranteed victory, and you might not have used those particular words, but it made the back pages of the New York tabloids, huge headlines going to game six, and you deliver with a hat trick. The Rangers tie the series. You guys win game seven in double overtime. The guarantee dominated the New York media. I have to ask you, what? how would that have been received in the social media age that we're in today? Well, I mean, we didn't have social media back then, but it was pretty well splashed over every newspaper and radio article and not to mention the New Jersey Devils locker room. So, uh, you know, the coconut wire, as we called it back then, the news traveled by the coconut wire. But I think uh, it, at that point, it didn't really matter to me. For me, the whole inspiration behind it was to try to get the confidence that we had shown all year against New Jersey and the way the confidence that we had played with against anybody all year. We were a President's Trophy winner. We had beaten Devils six times in a row. We had lost momentum in the series, and we had to figure out a way to play better. We were capable of playing better. We weren't playing poorly, but we were capable of playing better and pushing ourselves further. We had to find a way to do that, and the way you do that is to believe that you can do it. The inspiration behind that was just to make sure that the players knew that I believed we could do it, which I did, and we had to go find a way to win a couple games, and uh, we were fortunate to be able to do that. Rangers-Devils, one of the great rivalries that you were a part of during your career, you played in an era with some great rivalries, whether it's... Oilers, Islanders, when you guys are trying to break through and win the Stanley Cup. Edmonton-Calgary was a fierce rivalry. When you got to New York, Rangers, Islanders. It seems like hockey hasn't had a great rivalry since Detroit and Colorado in the late 90s, early 2000s. How much of that element do you think is missing from the game these days? Well, there's some good rivalries, but you know what really makes rivalries is uh, you know oftentimes the divisional play with two teams that are trying to get there. Uh, you know, and win a Stanley Cup. That's what happened with Colorado and Detroit. They'd face each other a number of times over the over the years, and so a, a real rivalry developed. You know, a little bit of hatred developed. Uh, you know, both were great teams, led by great superstars, by coaching, and and uh, that was the combustible energy that that's required for that kind of rivalry that you're talking about. But I think we're going to start to see it here in the next uh, next few years again. Um, you know, I think the the competition, actually, the, the the in the NHL with each team has has been very hard for for a team to kind of continue on year after year after year, or two teams to meet each other year after year. Um, you know, an injury here and there. Next thing you know, you get beat in the first round. Then that's why I think it's so remarkable what's what Tampa Bay's doing right now in this era, salary cap era, injuries. You know, the amount of games that they played and hard hockey that they played. Uh, to be able to, to be in the position they are again this year, you know, the final four in the conference finals against a young, inexperienced Ranger team is is incredible. But, you know, hopefully we do see those uh, rivalries uh, again, because I think from the fan perspective, it's uh, I know it's, uh, it's 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 great to watch and uh, it's great hockey as well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that ESPN documentary that's coming up about the Detroit, Colorado rivalry. That should be a lot of fun. Had a couple more questions for you. You played in three tough media markets. Um, was there more pressure as a player playing in New York or a Canadian market like Edmonton or Vancouver where it's all hockey all the time? One of the things I was hoping for when I left Edmonton to go to New York is that uh, the people cared as much about the game as they did in Edmonton. I didn't know going to New York 
what to expect from that regard, because one of the things that I felt was the most important ingredient for our success in Edmonton was the pressure and the external pressure that was put on the team, uh, the expectations that we had and the passion behind the fan base, which is, which in my mind is an important ingredient in a team's success. When I got to New York, I, I was relieved because it was became very apparent that the fan base, the passion in New York and the amount that people cared about the Rangers was just as strong as it was in Edmonton. And, uh, and I was, I was really, really happy about that. Uh, there's nothing like, you know, playing hockey, trying to win a Stanley cup when it matters to a lot of people, as we know, <laughs> in 94, we saw that passion emerge <laughs> to, to heights that, uh, maybe we haven't seen in a long time. So, um, I, 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 I didn't mind that pressure, that external pressure. I think you learn to, to understand it and, and use it as motivation. Um, responsibility is a big factor as a, as a professional athlete and, you know, responsibility, not only to the fan base, but also to your teammates. So those kinds of pressures were, were music to my ears and, and, and relished it. How did you view your media obligations as a player? Some, some people look at it as a necessary evil, but you seem to like always like kind of embrace being a spokesman or if you had to send a message out through the media. Well, I think you just said it exactly right. Just, you, you, you always use the, the, the media uh, to the advantageous uh, perspective. Um, there has to be a narrative that comes out of the team. And, and if you're one of the players that is talking to the media, you're really talking to your fan base. Uh, it's just a vehicle to get your messaging out. And so you have to be, you have to be smart about it. You have to be willing to stand up on and answer tough questions, but you don't have to necessarily answer the questions verbatim. Uh, the most important thing when you get in a tough situation in a place where you're under pressure or whatever is to make sure that whatever you're talking about is you're delivering your message and your narrative coming out of your camp to the, to the fans. And, uh, and that's important. You know, it, it takes years to understand that. And, you know, a lot of teams do media training uh, because of the importance of it now, and especially with social media and an amount of press that's covering these teams. Um, you know, you got to be savvy. You got to be media savvy as a player and as a team and as an organization to really kind of control that narrative, which is a big part, as you know, going into, you know, these kinds of games, you know, what, what, what do you want the people to feel of, about your team? What's going on internally? Are, do you have the confidence or is it a train wreck or is there in, in fighting? I mean, all these things that can be, that can come out of it. So uh, yeah, controlling the narrative as, as, a, as a captain or as one of the leaders is, is, is critical to a team's success. While I've got you here, I have to ask you something I was curious about throughout your career. You had a very distinctive look as a player, and you wore a very iconic helmet. The uh, I think it was the Winwell or Cooper helmet. I think at some point it was phased out during your career. How hard was it to keep finding that helmet? You know, until you, you finished your playing career. Well, I had our trainers uh, scouring the uh, scouring the world for. Uh for uh, Winwell parts and components to keep mine in shape uh, over the years. I kind of got banged up pretty good. Uh, nowadays, as you know, you got to change your inner insides of your helmet every six months or every year, I think, for just for the impacts. But, uh, you know, back things, everything was really different. Uh, I wore the old Jofa because I thought it was cool when I first broke in the league because Wayne Gretzky was wearing it. I said, if it can work for him, it'll work for me until Willie Plett punched me right in the helmet and cut me for eight stitches. So that's when I went and put the eight, the world windwell on. It gave me a little more protection. But, uh, yeah, no, it was a great helmet. Uh, but, uh, you know, even technology in the helmets nowadays have come so far. 
Last question I have for you. What is the likelihood that we get the Mark Messier dream Stanley Cup final with the Oilers playing the Rangers? And I'm not I'm going to guess you couldn't make a pick between those two, right? Well, there's a good chance, to be honest with you. Um, I think the Rangers got Tampa Bay's attention last night. Uh, although they played three times during the regular season, I think Tampa Bay saw a different, more focused, uh, more mature, uh, more refined game out of the Rangers with great goaltending and and a lot of balance. So I think if anything, Tampa Bay came out of that. Uh, I, I wouldn't say surprise, but I would I would definitely say they got they they got their attention. Um, it's going to be a big lift on on the West for Edmonton to beat Colorado. They're a strong team with a lot of dynamic players. You know, Edmonton's got the two most offensive players in the world right now. Uh, they're doing a lot of uh, heavy lifting for that Edmonton team. But I would say both teams got to be able to figure out a way to shut the door. I don't I don't think we can expect an eight six game every night, but. If they don't get the goaltending with that high-powered offenses that they have, we might. <laughs> so it's going to be really interesting to see if they can lock it down and and uh, and who's going to come out of that series. But Edmonton's definitely got a chance. In fact, I'm picking the Oilers to do it to come out of there, which would be, make an unbelievable final. If it's anything like the first two rounds, it's going to be some compelling theater. Mark Messier, Hockey Hall of Famer, ESPN hockey analyst. Thank you very much for your time. This was a blast talking to you about your career. You're one of the uh, greats who've come through Houston, so we're gonna put we're gonna put that on your resume now too. All the best with ESPN and uh, enjoy the rest of the playoffs. Well, I'm adopted son of Houston now just because I played there. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Texas Sports Nation podcast. For more Houston sports coverage, please go to HoustonChronicle.com/sports. 